so my name is Justin, for any of you who don't know, and I oversee the children's church. And the reason we're making that change is because youth is the youth, the, you know, it's more indicative of teens. So we're making that change. So hopefully you can uh, remember that. So I'm very thankful. I'm th- thankful today for your prayers. And it's probably your fault that we missed three days of school because of snow, because God had grace on me. I'm a teacher. I was able to study and stay home from school those days, so it's your fault. Um, so I'm thankful for God's grace because it's very busy and it's, uh, it's a challenge to get up here. And that's why I'm very thankful, too, that Rich and Paula are returning this week. So thank God. Uh, I'm realizing just that they're a blessing to our lives personally and our family. Uh, they're my children's grandparents, and so we're thankful. I'm thankful for them. I'm thankful that they're a part of this church body. Uh, it, it motivates me to pray more for them, just having people pray for me. That's encouraging. Uh, so I heard they're doing well. Rich was a little under the weather, uh, so you can pray for him, pray for them on their way home. They'd have a comfortable trip home. And that when they get here, they won't find us weary and scattered, like sheep without a shepherd, right? As we've been learning, so we can remain strong while they're away. So let's review. Uh, last week, we looked at the heart of Jesus, uh, who, who Jesus is, and his, his compassion for people. We looked at he's the high priest. Because he's the high priest, he can connect uh, with people, and he's a go-between between us and, and God. He loves the multitudes despite their weary and scattered ways. So we learned that. Uh, we see that he is a compassionate authority. So he's compassionate, yet he realizes that without discipleship, without coming under the good shepherd, people are going to be lost. And so he uh, wants people to surrender to him, and that authority is rooted in compassion. And we looked at this reflection can make us appreciate our good shepherd, and then it can help us to reach out and motivate us to be that uh, shepherd and, and uh, motivate us to preach the gospel to others, a compassionate evangelism. But I have to make a confession to you this week. I was on my way to the gym at 5.30 in the morning and around the rotaries in Apanog. Anyone know where those are? <laughs> yes. Okay. So we're going, it's dark. And we're going around, I'm going around the rotary, and there's a guy riding a bike, and you know me and bikes, we don't get along, so um, as I told the story last time, um, yes, right. So I say to myself, man, what is this guy doing? He's going to get himself killed. He's wearing dark clothes, no lights, no flashing, anything. It's dark. I'm like, ah. So my first thought was, this guy is going to ruin my day. And then I caught myself, as we should capture our thoughts hold them obedient to the, to, to the gospel, to the Bible. And I said, you know what? I'm going to have compassion enough on this guy to pray. He makes it where he's going safely. And the second prayer was that I was thankful that I have a warm car that I can get to work. So, so I'm a co-learner in this. I'm a co-laborer with you. So this is by no means something I've mastered or perfected. So Today I want to talk about laboring for the harvest and how we're kind of on the hook here and we can extend the compassion of Christ to others. That's our job as disciples. And so I want to talk about three things. Understanding the roles within the harvest. Who, who, is the, who are the laborers? Who is the, uh, 
king of the harvest. What are those roles? What do they look like? I want to talk about the preparation of the heart before we go out and preach the gospel. Also, I want to talk about some practical strategies, some things we can do practically to share the gospel. So let's, let's pray. Dear Jesus, I just give you today's message. Um, I have studied and planned, but Lord, it's up to you and in your hands to move by your spirit to make this word real and meaningful and motivating to our hearts. Lord, I, anything that's of me, you take away. And I just pray your word would penetrate our hearts today by your spirit and by your love and your power. And I just uh, pray that we could go away from this place changed, Lord, not just, not just think it's a good message, but we would be changed from the inside out by your word and by your power. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's read Matthew 9. Verse 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful. But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So let's first dissect this harvest field analogy. Let me set the stage. So Jesus, he pauses while looking over the vast multitudes of people, the bodies, the souls, seeing this great need, maybe knowing his earthly ministry only last, was going to last so long. And he looks at this motley crew of disciples as you know, some, a tax collector, some undereducated fishermen. And he looks at them and he says to his closest friends, I want you to share in this mission. He was their daily companion for three years, so they've, got re- they've been getting very close. And he confides in them this mission, this thing that's so important to him. He turns to them and he says, look, the harvest is truly plentiful, but there's a problem. The laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. He uses this analogy or comparison, maybe because they're, they lack understanding. Maybe he wants to express the urgency. In those communities, they would have understood what it meant to have a harvest field that's just waiting to be harvested, but no laborers. What a waste. What an urgent need. The harvest is ready, but there's no one to collect it. There's no one to work the fields. It's there. It's ready to go. So what is the harvest? That represents people, people that need to hear the message and respond to the gospel. Who are the laborers? Those sharing the gospel so that people can get saved and discipled. So you have this analogy. And he's saying, look, this is a ripe opportunity. There are souls ready for God's intervention right now. They're ready for truth, ready for discipleship. So I just see Jesus trying to pass on his heart, pass on the baton, this burden, recognizing that the future ministry of the church would rest on these disciples. But they were going to need God's help and God's power to do this, of course. But this was the avenue God chose to minister to the lost. Men and women, maybe even children, to be conduits to share the gospel. Not angels, as we learned from Patrick, not donkeys, Right? Not messages in the clouds, but us. 
In fact, in John 14, 12, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And verse 16 says, And I pray to the Father, and he will give you a helper, that he may abide with you forever. So Jesus didn't plan on staying on earth to help them through this. He planned to go to the Father and send the helper, the Holy Spirit. So this was the avenue that God chose. He chose us. Weak, frail humans in the flesh as the primary means to deliver the gospel to the scattered masses with the promise of the Holy Spirit. What is the gospel? Romans 10.9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the promise. That's the gospel. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But the second part, Verse 14 in Romans 10 says, How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. So this is the, we are the, the avenue that God chose. In the same compassion that Jesus had on these scattered masses, he wants to use us to extend to others. People like you and me. You say, who, me? What, me? No, not me. That's the pastor's job. Or that's the evangelist's job. Yes, you. You are one of his disciples if you've believed in the gospel and received. In fact, another time Jesus was moved with compassion to feed the multitudes, he asked what you have. And someone brought, they brought the five loaves and two fishes to Jesus. They brought what they had to Jesus. And what did he do? He multiplied it. He gave it to the disciples and they gave it to the masses. So the, the food was multiplied and given through the disciples. And so this is another type. The truth is you have something, I have something the world needs. Jesus gave you his word, eternal life. You have something this world needs. The world has nothing to offer you. Its ideas, philosophies, fads, trends are bankrupt. The world's methods are powerless to solve man's sin problem. And if we look around, we can see that. Jesus has the words of life. You have the words of life. You have the gospel. You have something this world needs. The enemy would like to come in and deceive us into thinking that we just, don't, we just can't cut it. But we have something that they need. Let's talk about the roles a little bit that we see the Lord of the harvest and then we see laborers. And uh, let's learn from the science of gardening. I like to garden as many of you. How, have, how many of you have started to sketch out your spring garden yet? Yeah, yeah, maybe. I'm very much looking forward to that weather like today helps me to think about my garden. So let's look at the science of that, right? Let's look at the roles by exploring gardening or farming. The Lord, our creator, has one job, and the farmer or gardener has another. We start with the seed. All of the genetic code for the plant and the fruit is in that tiny seed. Who's responsible for that? Well, the, the miracle of, of God and his creative powers. The genetic code is all in there. The Lord's job is to design the seed the intricacies of the seed. The farmer's job is to get the seed in the ground. There are times when my life is so busy that 
gardening just kind of gets put on the back burner. And then I have this phrase that goes through my mind. Get the seed in the ground. Get the seed in. It, it doesn't have to be perfect. Just get it in the ground. Just scatter it. Spread it. Get it out there. Right? So there's a point where the farmer has to actually get the seed out there. But the Lord causes the miracle of growth. It's all in the seed ready to go. The farmer tends and waters the seed. But the Lord produces the fruit through the, through the design of creation, through pollination, through his, the miracle of the ecosystem, right? And the farmer has one last job, which is to harvest the fruit. Timing is key. You can't harvest fruit that's not there. And some plants, if you harvest, the more fruit is produced. Some vegetables, the more you harvest, the better the, the, the fruit you get, the better yields. And so harvesting has this multiplying effect, exponential production. The same is true of the gospel that we preach. God's role is the miracle of growth, to use that seed to grow it within someone's life, within someone's heart. We're responsible for getting the seed in contact with the soil, delivering the message. That's our job. And to reap the harvest, to be ready. But God causes the growth. What does God ask for? Let's look at how we might feel unqualified. We say, well, I'm not a preacher. I'm not an evangelist. And we say, well, that's just not me. I can't do that. But let's look at the word that God uses here. He uses the word. Therefore, he says the laborers are few. Hmm, laborers. I'm glad that he said laborer and not eloquent speaker. Comedian, because my timing is often off. Star quarterback, I can't see over the front line. You know, Champion fighter, my reach is a little short. I'm glad that he didn't say highly intelligent. I have to work pretty hard. I had to work pretty hard in school. I consider myself average to lower intelligence, a slow learner. So I'm glad he didn't say that. I'm glad he didn't say wealthy. I won't comment. So actually our reliance on these things can actually be a hindrance to us. If we put faith in ourselves, God might not be able to use us to the capacity that he could if we humbly trust in his strength and ability. And there's something about that word laborer. It just makes me think of work. There's a sense of effort. Doing things I don't feel like doing. Do I feel like praying? Do I feel like sharing the gospel right now? It might make me a little uncomfortable. But there's something about labor that's just work. When I think of labor, a laborer, I don't necessarily think of somebody gifted. I think of somebody that's not easily deterred. They do the work even when it's not convenient, when it's hard, when it's raining, when it's snowing, when it's, it doesn't matter. They don't give up. They put their hand to the plow and they keep going. They're not affected by minor setbacks or disappointments. And they don't really complain about the assignment. Now, has anyone here been a laborer in the construction field? Been a laborer? Yeah, I have. Now, if you know what a laborer in the construction industry looks like, you know it's not a glamorous role. They take a lot of direction, and they're not paid to think or make executive decisions. That's not very encouraged. It's just a continuous, repetitive work. Now, they're not necessarily held responsible when things go wrong because they're just taking orders. But they get to be a part of projects that are bigger than themselves. 
Uh, Nicola and I, when we got married, I lived in a town called Lebanon, and, there, and I was on a construction crew. They did a, a massive three-story building renovation. They had government funds to do this. It brought a lot of attention and, and just uh, economic growth to the area, and I was very proud to say I was a part of this project, and this project was a part of conversations. People talked about it, so I, I like to chime in and say, yeah, I was a part of that project. But I didn't tell anyone for three months that my one job was to sweep the floors. So for three months, I went floor, top to bottom, all these floors in two separate buildings, and just swept the floors. And it was probably one of the most painfully boring things I've ever done. But what was cool is I got to be a part of something bigger than myself. I was a laborer. And sometimes that's what we are in, in the kingdom. So we're talking about spiritual things, though, laboring in the things of God, laboring and preaching, laboring and sharing the gospel. And so the Lord is responsible for the changed lives. We're responsible to daily pray and share our faith where, where the door is open, and even maybe when it's not. But we don't want to enter this haphazardly, and I like how it says, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few, in the next verse, 38, he says, go, right? No. He says, therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So the preparation of the heart begins with prayer. Just thinking about this. Why? Why is it prayer first? Well, it prepares us. It prepares the, the harvest field. It prepares the people we're going to share with and talk to. The need is too great the work is too spiritual to be met by our flesh. Works in our human effort. Strategies in our human effort. I can't conjure up the agape love needed to show the compassion that God has for people. Only by spending time in his presence. As we intercede for the lost, we will gain that heart of compassion. It only is going to come through him. God has to do that work in us. Because we don't want to be like the hireling in John 10, 13, where the hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. So when the going gets tough, we don't want to exit stage right, right? We need God's help. We need to pray. Jesus is our example. You might remember this. Mark 1, 35 through 39 says, Now in the morning, having, ris having risen a long while before daylight, he, that is Jesus, went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone's looking for you. But he said to them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also. Because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. So he was becoming very popular in the area. But through prayer, through that guidance, the father, I believe, uh, directed him to go to another town. And this is where all his patience came from, his compassion. He woke a long time before morning. I, know, I don't know about you, but my kids wake up very, very early, around 7 o'clock. And I find if I don't get up and get motivated and spend time before they wake up, I'm sunk. It's, the day is going to be a long, difficult day. And so rising up, I don't know what early is for you, and I don't know what your family life is like, but taking that time, I think... Uh, get, makes us more aware about the Father's business. We have lots of business, our jobs and things and cares of this world, and I think that can be a way to uh, beat the devil to the harvest fields. We can get up and, 
and be out there and be at work uh, early, a long time before dawn, it says. So Jesus is our example. And why, why is this important? Prayer is our weapon. It's a weapon. We can't be naive to think it's not going to be a battle for souls. Do we care enough about the Lord's business to battle in prayer for souls? Who are we battling? The enemy. I can't approach the harvest haphazardly. There's going to be a fight. You're going to face an opponent more fierce than any human on earth. Who is this enemy? It's the devil, the god of this age, a spiritual force that we are not equipped to defeat without spiritual weapons. As the amusement park sign reads, you will get wet on this ride. It's going to be a battle. But we're encouraged, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God, should shine on them. So there's, a, there's something going on in people's hearts that's preventing them from believing the gospel. It's the, the blinding that the enemy has put over their eyes. So we need to take these weapons of our warfare of prayer and take them up and use them. As you know, in sports, no one enters a sport without first getting the right equipment. You can't go in and play football without a helmet, or else you'd be, you'd be destroyed, you'd be injured. And just like that, we can't enter the harvest field without the right equipment. Our weapons of warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. We need the armor of God, Ephesians 6. You can look that up. Just think of Moses as the example. See, Moses is a type of uh, the Savior, right? He, he helped set the Israelites free. Pharaoh's a type of the devil. Moses had to battle Pharaoh. He didn't just go there and say, let my people go, and then it was all, hey, great, yeah, sure, go ahead. Love you, Moses, you're a great guy, I know. Moses had to go back and forth with God, wrestling with God in prayer, saying, God, what's going on? What's, you know, I don't understand go back, and it was a miraculous, supernatural event, one after another, until finally Pharaoh let the people go. So we have to bind up the strong man before we can take the spoil, as Mark 12, 29 says. You can't enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless you first bind the strong man and then plunder his house. So we're going to need to do some praying, some standing in the gap. As a mentor once said to me, prayer is like bringing a knife to a fight. If you were in a fist fight with someone and you pulled out a knife, your opponent would give all his attention to that weapon. Your opponent would spend all his time trying to disarm you from that knife because it can cause the most damage. So why do you think it's so hard to pray? Because the enemy is at work to get that weapon out of your hand, that tool. As soon as you start praying, all hell breaks loose. Your kids wake up, someone's screaming, someone threw up, someone peed his pants, someone, you, you, your brain wanders. As soon as you start praying, hell is woken against you. So we need to pray through this and realize the power of prayer in our lives. Rise up well before morning, just like Jesus. Also, prayer gives us the opportunity for a burden. The Lord wants to instill in our hearts a burden. That has to be something we're passionate about. The gospel has to be real to us. Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, I'd like you to turn there because I think this is really powerful. You might 
have it memorized, in fact. Isaiah chapter 6. This is the, talking about the burden, a burden for your people, a burden for your family, a burden for those around you, a burden for our nation. Verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated, sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people. So we see Isaiah spent time in the presence of the Lord and he got a real picture of who God is. He certainly felt inadequate for the job, but God touched his lips with a cold fire and he said, Here am I, send me. And that can be you and me as well. So finally, we see why we pray. It's because of God's empowerment. Acts 1.8, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the power of the Spirit was able to send these people where they needed to go. They would be witnesses, not by their own efforts, their own toil, but through God's power, God's strength. And they changed the world, really. The disciples changed the world through their witness, through their testimony, through their understanding of who God is, as we see in Isaiah, through his presence, through his teaching. And that's possible today. So let's talk about some practical strategies. What, what can you do practically to help be a laborer for the harvest? Turn back to Matthew. So first, I want to talk about the body of Christ. Because remember, we're talking about not only preaching the gospel, but making disciples. And that happens, God has chosen the body of Christ as a means for this to happen. So the body of Christ can be a platform for reaching out and discipling others. So I want to ask you, what does this church, what does church mean to you? Is it a place where you experience healing, care, fellowship, growth, and discipleship? And what is your role in allowing that to happen in someone else's life? Someone that maybe hasn't even shown up yet. Maybe they're out there in the community. 
I want to share a story. And when, like I said, Nicole and I got married, we lived in Lebanon shortly after we got married. I was going to school there at a small community college. Started going to a church, which I was a part of, but when I started going back, I didn't know many people. There was a period of time where I was very discouraged and frustrated because I would go on Sunday and I would go and I would just feel disconnected. I would feel just not a part of what was going on. No one really talked to me. No one was super friendly. And then one day I just felt very convicted. And the Lord kind of spoke to me and said, you know what, if you want to see friendliness in your church here, that you call your church, then you start being friendly. You start reaching out. If you see that's a need, then you, then you do something about it instead of accusing everybody else. Why aren't they friendly to me? Okay, we're big, we're big boys and girls, right? And, and we're, we're disciples, we're trying to grow. And that is part of it. If you see something like that, step up, get involved. What happens when we step up and get involved? As I, you know, in that small example, stepped up, started getting involved, started reaching out to others instead of looking for people to reach out to me. I said, you know what? I'm going to start trying something different here. Try a new strategy. What happened was I started to feel more ownership, more a part of what, where I was going. I feel a part of this church now because I stepped up and got involved. And that is one way. Sometimes we fear stepping out. We feel fear doing something. Why do we fear this? Because we're a bunch of backseat drivers, Facebook orators. We can say a lot of powerful words on Facebook. We're experts at defining problems for others. But we lack the courage to participate. We're criticizing. We complain. With this attitude, we're missing out on the meaning and purpose of being a part of the gospel, being a part of his labor force. So when he saw the multitudes, he had compassion. Now, in order to see the multitudes, he had to be out there. So we have to get in the game. We have to get out there to see the need. So let's not be sideline participants. Let's consider ourselves within God's sheepfold and take this to heart. And do something about it. Maybe you already are, and that's great. So another thing I just want to talk about, another point, is who are we dealing with when we're dealing with the multitudes? We're dealing with sinners. So don't be surprised. We have a tendency to want to clean up our act before we come to Jesus, and I think sometimes we project that onto others. Remember how you were when you got saved? I know for me, I was very broken discouraged, down. I didn't do things perfectly. When God gets his hand on somebody, that's when the indwelling power of the Spirit changes them from the inside out. So, so expect and be ready that when someone comes across your path, a sinner, they're going to do what sinners do. They sin. They're going to let you down. Right? Don't be like the Pharisees. They were all about the outward behavior, the outward performance, changing the outside. But the inside was filled with dead men's bones, the Lord said. We don't want to be in the business of producing Pharisees. So let's let God do that work and be patient with people. But does that mean, this leads to the next point, does that mean we let people in the world take advantage of us? We cower in weakness and let them exercise their will over us, allow ourselves to be manipulated. 
No, we shouldn't go along with the philosophies of the world. We shouldn't let the world lead us, but we should lead those who need, need him. Giving in to our flesh or the flesh of somebody else is not going to make disciples. We might call it tough love, right? Jesus 666, kind of interesting, right? The address there. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, go get them, bring them back. No, he didn't. He said, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We don't alter the message here. Jesus didn't alter the message. He let them go. He didn't apologize for his words, but he was not surprised. So I think that's important to remember, and it leads me to Matthew 10, 16, where he says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. So we do need wisdom. You need to be around people, but beware of their human philosophies. Be among the lost, but lead them rather than be led. Compassion mixed with wisdom. So the other day, some, maybe I shouldn't go to the gym because this was another one. So I'm at the gym. I park my car. I open my door, and there's a guy in my blind spot, a pedestrian. Something with me and pedestrians. So I open the door, and I'm like, whoa, he just... He came up to the car door and he's talking a million miles a minute. He's like, I need a ride. I need to go to the mall and I got to rip my pants and my effingness and blah, 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 blah. I need a ride. Can you give me? And I'm like, whoa, whoa. And I'm thinking, the guy needs a ride. I'm like thinking about compassion. I'm like, Ugh. so I'm like, just wait a minute. So I lock my car. I go into the gym and I tell somebody because I don't want to be, you know, murdered on the side of the road because I didn't tell anyone. No one knew where I was. Justin was supposed to go to the gym. He never showed up. And blah. So, you know, you have that thought runs through your head. So I said, hey, wait right here. So I went in and told somebody. They strongly encouraged me. Yeah, dude, don't, don't do, you know, he's, he sounds like he's on drugs or something. Like, just, I would tell him no. So I'm like, man, I'm really torn. I'm trying to, like, show compassion to people. So I go out and I said, listen, I'm really sorry, but no, I can't. I got, I'm working out. I'm going go to go to work. I got places to be or whatever. And the guy like a switch he started like getting hostile with me like getting close to me and and he I said and he said thanks for wasting my time you could have just told me no the first place like and there was something in me you know I don't know maybe it's shrewd as serpent maybe I was just angry I said whoa, whoa, whoa hold on I said I'm wasting your time wait say that again like I just kind of laid into him and he he backed up and he said no I'm just oh, okay you know, I, I didn't say that. And then we had this, this, I'm like, oh, man. So, you know, in that moment, I felt bad and I felt burdened, but I do feel like I did the right thing. Putting yourself in unnecessary danger, I don't think is what the Lord would have us do. So I think listening to advice, you know, listening to the Holy Spirit in that moment, you know, it was the guy wasn't, he didn't, you know, looking at the signs, he didn't appear in any immediate danger. He had some torn clothes, but he wanted to go to the bus stop. There are other bus stops here. I just... You know, it was like his story didn't line up. And then, obviously, the swearing at me and that kind of stuff. Very hostile person. I'm not, it's maybe not the safest thing to do. So we do have to exercise wisdom. And, you know, you can, I can pray for that guy and pray he, you know, comes to the Lord. I don't, I don't know what his situation is totally. But I do think there's a place for wisdom. You know, we have these certain standards and certain things 
you know, we're not going to pick up a hitchhiker. You know, I wouldn't encourage my wife to pick up a hitchhiker with the kids in the car or something like that. You know, it's just you, you, you're wise as, as serpents. Definitely other avenues to exercise sharing the gospel besides putting yourself in that immediate kind of a danger. So I just wanted to mention that. Finally, I want to mention uh, another powerful tool is the power of your testimony when you're sharing the gospel with people. So what is your testimony? We hear this, you know, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony, that's a powerful weapon. What, is, what does that mean? A testim- to testify or your testimony is telling what Jesus has done in your life and what he is doing in your life. So it's really the power of the gospel at work in your heart to change you. That's, that's the, your testimony. And it's one of the biggest evangelism tools because it's a picture of your authentic, authentic relationship with Jesus. No one can argue with what Jesus has done in your life. If he's truly at work in your life, your personal relationship with him, to be honest, no one really cares how much you know anyway. You can argue with someone till you're blue in the face. They don't really care how much you know. But if you have an authentic relationship with Jesus that means something to you and you're passionate about this message, that's going to impact people's lives. You don't need to be a seminary graduate to share what Jesus is doing or to pray. The lost world cares about authenticity, and as parents, we know this, right? The world and our children can spot hypocrites a mile away. So living out your testimony, living out what is Jesus doing in your life? What is the power of the gospel in your life? That's powerful, the test, your testimony. You will make mistakes, and in fact, Paul, in sharing his testimony to the Jewish brother, his Jewish brothers in Acts 22, this is your homework, go read Acts 22 and see the result of Paul's eloquent sharing of his testimony. No one got saved. He was actually thrown in prison. He, he, bur- he longed to preach the gospel to his Jewish brethren. He said, if, if only I could be accursed that they might be saved. He had such a burden in a heart. So he gets this opportunity. He's there in Jerusalem. He finally gets there. He gets the crowd silenced. He stands up and he shares his testimony. He, he, he goes through Acts 22. He gets to the word Gentiles because he starts speaking about how the message was going to be presented to the Gentiles. And the crowd went wild, not in a good way. They started beating him. They got in a riotous frenzy. The Roman guards had to come down, take him away, and throw him in prison. They questioned him, and from that time on, he was in prison, sent to Rome. It seemed like an utter failure. The result was no one got saved. But what I find is really encouraging is that Jesus stood by him in the next chapter, and he said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, you must also bear witness at Rome. Jesus didn't say, Man, you really messed that one up. He said, be of good cheer. He did a good job. He shared. He was faithful. So sharing our faith, evangelizing, we're going to risk failure. We're going to risk stepping out of our comfort zone. We're going to risk looking foolish or being in over our heads. As the great theologian, Master Shifu in Kung Fu Panda 3 says, if you only do what you can do, you will never be more than you are right now. For example, one of my first evangelical messages to my dad when I got saved was, Dad, TV's trash. Not the wisest way to start. Might be true, but as 
as something to share with someone who's lost, that's probably not the way to start. But you know what? It did open the conversation with my dad, and we had a nice argument about it. Sometimes it's just opening your mouth. Just open your mouth. In fact, this week I got to share with somebody that I apologized to them because I felt that the snow days that we got were my fault. I said, oh, it's because I have to preach, and I think God was just gracious to me, and they gave us three snow days so I could prepare. And they said, well, I'll be cursing you in June. <laughs> but you know what? It opened the door, and they know who I am. They know what I'm about, and it may, might prevent, present an opportunity in the future. I've bounced around from my elementary schools a lot in the last couple of years. I spent two years at John Wick's elementary school, spent two years at Holloman, and now I'm in two schools, Norwood and uh, Holloman, I was at Holden, yeah. So uh, so I've gotten to interact with a lot of teachers, and the one thing that's kind of difficult for me talking to educators is they, they have it all together. And it's hard sometimes to, when you look around, it's hard to realize that the harvest truly is plentiful. And I, I believe the lie sometimes that, you know what, these people are all said, they don't need, they don't need me, they don't need the gospel. They, I mean, they seem like their lives are together. And that's just, that's just a lie. It's a lie. And, I, and so... You know, there's times when you start to get to know people, you, you sort of hear the truth about their situation. You hear what they're going through, what their families are going through, the pain and the suffering that's going on, and they have no hope. They have no hope. So I have something the world, the world needs. And you can start by opening, opening that conversation. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. It's changed my life. It's changed many of your lives. God is in the business of changing lives. Finally, I want <clears throat> to just mention that we leave the results to God. We labor, and we might not see immediate results. That should not discourage us because of Jesus' parable of the, of the seed that was scattered. Some fell on rocky ground, some fell on the path, some was choked by weeds, but some was multiplied and grew. So don't be discouraged. Leave it to the Lord of the harvest. So in conclusion, we realize that Jesus' compassion is rooted in his desire to see people submitted to him. And that includes you. And hopefully you have a fresh appreciation for God's love for you as your good shepherd. And now we can get in the game. We see the multitudes. We prepare through prayer, through the spiritual weapons we have. Do you see or can we see the multitudes not for what they are, but what they could be, one of his sheep, their potential? Can you see the potential in others? Can you see what it would look like for them living in the image of God in which they were created? You have something to offer this world, salvation. Pray for the laborers, and then here I am, send me. He might just send you. So we are going to pray. We are going to do a last song, but I, I would like to stay up here and pray if there's anybody who would like to pray. If there's somebody in your family, somebody in your circle of influence you want to pray for, someone in your harvest field where you're located that you'd like to pray for, I'd like to offer that. Maybe Miss Annie can uh, pray too with the women, and we can just stand together with you in bringing those who are lost before the throne. So let's not forget to be about our Father's business. Let's pray.